I'm Zach Miller, Editor-in-Chief of Tearsheet. The following was produced by Tearsheet Studios. We worked with employment data platform Argyle to create a podcast series about the rising importance of employment data and how lenders, banks, and fintechs are using this data to make financial products available to more people, solving some of the challenges with today's financial services. The job of a CTO in fintech is wide and varied. Building a secure fintech solution that handles sensitive financial and employment data requires treading carefully. You can't really move fast and break things. My name is Audrey Zeus. I'm a CTO at Argyle. I primarily write Slack messages and emails all day long and, and worry about the technology problems. From building scalable databases to, yes, writing emails and Slack messages, fintech CTOs are tasked with big responsibilities. It can help when they have diverse backgrounds, building tech solutions in various industries. It even helps hone their communication skills. I started in consulting, so I guess I did start writing emails and Slack messages. And uh, I sort of, well, I, I, I worked at Deloitte, uh, Deloitte Digital to be specific, and I was a developer there. And I worked on a lot of open banking projects, which is a similar field to, I guess, what we do, just another industry. And, and I had a very interesting, long, windy road to, to end up working on employment data, but essentially went through, uh, you know, me leaving Deloitte, starting my own VR startup. <laughs> um, that ended up not going anywhere, but I ended up selling the technology I had for one of the largest defense contractors in Europe. And I worked in the field of defense for, for almost five years, primarily with uh, simulation technologies. And then after a while, I was ready to sort of get back into fintech, started contracting as a technology VP for hire. That's how I met Shmolik, actually. We, uh, you know, we met while working online. Uh, you know, he had some interesting, crazy ideas that sounded way too simple at the start. <laughs> and uh, we started building them. And here we are, you know, three years later. It's not uncommon for tech professionals to move back and forth between various industries. That's Audrius's story with defense contracting. It makes sense. Some of the same skill sets and technologies, like big data and aggregating data across various sources, are employed in both industries. Some of the same challenges exist, too. There's actually a surprising number of people that went back and forth between defense and, and fintech. I don't know why. But if you, if you look at sort of the history of those two fields, they're somewhat, somewhat intertwined. I think for myself, I you know my experience within Deloitte with open banking and all the other sort of, you know, banking, digital banking related uh, sectors there was actually something I kind of enjoyed. And one of the things I kind of missed in the defense sector was actually the speed at which things are going. It's a very interesting uh, area of work. However, it's at times pretty slow and outdated, you know, product life cycles there are, in, you know, counted in decades or, or more. So like, I really missed that fast moving environment. And, uh, yeah, and, and and I think I kind of got what I wanted. We ended up, you know, needing to build something that's really fast moving here. So yeah, so that drew, drew, drew me back to fintech. Fintech frequently means building modern apps on top of aged legacy technology. This approach may be easier than ripping out the decades old tech stack, but it limits some of the things you can do. You have to write so much code just to manage someone else's tech. You know, the analogy I use is uh, we're building a castle on top of the stilts that are leaning against boats in the sea. <laughs> you know, we're building our platform <laughs> and infrastructure on top of other people's infrastructure we don't control, right? 
and uh, we integrate with them and we have to do our best to make sure those tilts, those connectors are as stable as they can be to make sure, you know, castle floats at the top. So it's a really interesting technical challenge because you end up having to write a lot of proprietary IP that helps you manage those unreliabilities that are inherently there because it's other people's code. I think people who work in banking and open banking definitely know the feels for this. Building the castle that Audrius describes is just the beginning. Argyle's building an employment data platform, and that means integrating with a lot of businesses and payroll processors, a lot of them. That scope is definitely something that's, uh, you know, that's the bit of the iceberg that's under the water. Once you look at this industry from the you know, top, you don't see why it's hard. But once you get down into the details, like every business in the United States uh, files taxes and has employment data, right? And they probably use one of the many thousand providers that allow them to do that. And, uh, you know, the large portion of those use uh, large platforms, but there's a really long tail of these small businesses that have their own SaaS solutions to let people hire people, right? So like when we go and integrate with these platforms, uh, we have to kind of cover pretty much everything. So we're talking about like tens of thousands of potential uh, integrations to get to like 90% coverage of the market. And, um, you know, some of those have APIs and some of those actually have websites that say copyright 2007. So like there's a really a varying degree of, of, of sort of, um, you know, technical prowess in, in those systems. It's not just the sheer number of nodes that makes building an employment data platform a massive undertaking. It's also the data. Employment data is messier than bank data, which has had years of efforts to standardize it. Also, when it comes to the data itself, as you mentioned, like if you look at the bank statement data, it's actually uh, easy to work with. I'm kind of jealous of companies that integrate financial you know, institutions because you only have like bank statements, investment products. What we're actually dealing with is you know, multi-year work histories. So because we don't only look at payments, we also look at potential information such as shifts and uh, you know, when it comes to gig work, trips. Um, so like an average user for us can sometimes have up to 300 megabytes worth of text data alone per user, right? So um, this, this really sort of ups the game when it comes to building scalable infrastructure. We can't play with the same types of databases most people play with. It's the big, big data in the true sense of the word. Financial data aggregation is about building the rails that data moves back and forth on. Opening up employment data, like the moves afoot with banking data, is intended to empower the user. It's about giving people the control over their information. Yeah, and you know, this this is something that people often get wrong. Like we we're not like some of the big Equifax-like providers that's just sort of buy up and have all the data. We actually just, you know, we're the railway network that moves data from one side to another. So, like, you know, from technical perspective, what we do is like we you know, we, we, our clients are companies and um, when they ask their clients, people to share their financial data, we essentially move that data. We take it out, we package it up nicely in, you know, little boxes that the company can retrieve through our API and we move it across the railway and give it to the company. And if the user decides they no longer want to share that, they can just remove the connection and we remove all the data at the same second. 
So like every bit of data that we moved is user controlled. So the, the person who d- decided to give their permission for the company to see the data, they're, they're always in control. Um, and I think this is not only, you know, a good thing to do. This is just the way the world works now. You look at the GDPR and CCPA and just just what's right at the moment, right? What's right for the industry? And this 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 is the logical conclusion. Like people own their own data. They need to be able to utilize it. And we're just the means for doing that. Open banking or open finance, if you want to include employment data in the mix, is still in its early innings. Europe and the U.S. have diverged in their approaches to creating ecosystems. But one thing is common to both markets. We're still early in the number of open APIs and the quality of them. It's a really interesting angle because in some sense, um, you know, the, the, the open banking sector mimicked this problem, right? And, and like the analogy is here is like if you look at what happened in Europe, like government mandated open APIs for all the banks, kind of feel like this is the direction when, in, in which the wind is blowing. So like when, when you know, governments and people recognize that the data they own is locked up somewhere, they kind of go and ask for a key, right? Or a door they can put a key in. So I think we'll see more and more of these companies getting APIs out and allowing people to move their histories fluently and easily, right? But another angle of that same analogy is the fact that even though you know open banking provides you with the APIs, they're usually not that good, so you end up still having to make integrations. And um, you know, you look at the companies that work in that space, and even though they use those APIs, then still need to do custom integrations themselves. So I feel like we're gonna, you know, in the future, we're gonna be in this mix where we can use some of the APIs these platforms have, but we also need to do other custom stuff because there's just isn't enough incentive for them to be as fast and building great APIs as it is for somebody that makes the integrations. There's an old adage in entrepreneurship that in the early days of building a company, you should do things that don't scale to find the problem and get your first few customers. At some point though, you've got to introduce automation to build a scalable FinTech solution. Automating is the only way to do it. I mean, I, I know there's some people out there trying to do it manually and you know, it sort of works until you have like five clients. Um, but if you want to do anything at scale, you you need to like, you know, fully automate this process. Like what we do actually is like we have this few step process where, you know, we write custom automation integrations. But then we're also um, developing like a generalized uh, ML AI driven solution that can integrate, you know, tens of thousands of similar platforms. So like automation horizontally as, as much as vertically is, 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 is key, right? In order to make this scalable. Automation is especially important when you're building on top of other firms' infrastructure. That's because there are more touch points to cover. Adrius describes this as surface area, and it needs automation to build out. Yeah, well, currently you just have a lot of people in other boats going around and fixing the stilts, right? And what you want to have is the drones flying around and fixing the stilts. So that's, that's you know, to continue in the same analogy, that's, that's the automation you want to have. You want to have like automated robotic deployment of the stilts to, to, to be able to provide more, more surface for the castle you're building. Yeah, but, in, you know, when it comes to the work we do, like, you know, there's a large chunk of work at the beginning when you integrate a new platform. But there, there's also then a substantial amount of work that continues throughout the time when that platform gets updated, it changes, et cetera, right? Because we have to keep on top of all the changes. So 
it's as much as automating building the, the new integrations as it is automating uh, repairing and, and sort of monitoring the changes in the current ones. For fintechs moving into financial data, they're sometimes surprised by the number of certifications they need. But it's necessary to move into a space where large institutions share and consume data with you. You know, we have SOC 2 Type 2 um, certification that we got recently, and I think sort of a COVID password that lets you travel free without the checks. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's something that essentially checks that you are compliant with the certain rules and regulations. And, you know, even if you are and you don't have that, uh, you know, you don't have that sticker, it makes it kind of harder to talk to people. So we're definitely on the road to get all the possible um, stickers that actually show that our processes and the way we do things are compatible, uh, you know, the best and even more than the best industry standards. Um, but yeah, I think I think certifications are good in reflecting like the best practices. But it, for us internally, it's also really important to just like do better than they just require, right? Like we don't want to do everything that's in a checklist for certification. We actually want to do better and then make sure that like we're one step ahead of where that uh, board of regulation is sort of going. Um, because yeah, I mean we're we're building the data business, so like the two big pillars of this is uptime and security. This is the things we we think about every day, and those are the things you know that that we all want to work on and make better. Audrius believes that new technology can give the historical credit score a run for its money. To make that happen, though, employment data will play a major role. When you look at what the credit score is, it's just you know an an, an output of a, a very primitive algorithm somebody came up with trying to essentially reduce the risk for the lender, right? If you have systems that in other ways reduce the risk for the lender, what you end up having is a more efficient system for everyone. So if I, you know, if, if as a lender, if I don't have a risk to lend somebody money, or if I know it's a pretty low risk, I can actually work on tighter margins there. What that means for the end users means they can get a cheaper loan, right? So like by improving the efficiency here, we're actually helping both parties, lenders to make money safely and people who actually go and lend money, you know, borrow money to be able to borrow it more cheaply. So like a good example is, you know, imagine you want to um, essentially lend somebody some money before they get paid, you know, that they make X, but you don't really know how much work they have done this week. Well, if you use Argyle, you know, and somebody works at, let's say, I don't know, Walmart, you can see their, you know, if they decide to share that information with you, you can see their shifts and you can use that as an evidence to like, uh, you know, lend them the money earlier or, or pay them daily uh, based on what they actually make and do as accurate forecast as you can do. Um, and, and you know, the, the, the fact that they already carried out the work, the fact that they work at the reputable place is, makes every, you know, lending decision way less risky. So... I do think this is a, this is going to see a lot of interesting innovations this sort of the area. This concludes the second episode of a podcast series we've been running in conjunction with Argyle. To access the other episodes in the series, head on over to the Tearsheet website.